to Gospel of Mark together. Gospel of Mark. Eighth chapter. We're going to look together today at verse 34 through 9 1. 834 to 9 1. Let's stand as we honor God's word and read together. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. Gracious Lord, we praise you and glorify you. We want to be what you say, and we want to be what we say. I pray, Lord, today as we look at the words of the Savior, as we are caught up in these words, for they are words that are written to us today. Though they were written to others first, words have been repeated again and again and again and again. And I pray today, Lord, as we both hear them, we speak them, receive them, and then we become part of transmitting them to others, that you will awaken us afresh by your Spirit and set our hearts ablaze. We glorify you today, Holy One. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's be seated. In the last sermon, last week, we saw Jesus ask the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? That's in the 13th verse of the, last, of the same chapter. And Peter, under the inspiration of his heavenly Father, as Jesus said, gave the answer, You are the Messiah, the Anointed One. He indeed got it right. Moments later, Jesus explained to his disciples that he was going to go to Jerusalem. He would suffer there. He would be crucified there. 
he would die there, be buried, and in three days he would rise from the dead. And we looked at that as a concise statement of the gospel. At this point, the same Peter, who had been so insightful, really more inspired earlier, said to him, or he rebuked him, it says in Mark's gospel, but we see the synoptic gospels as they are expanding on this phrase. Matthew observes that Peter further stated, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Here, indeed, Peter got it wrong. Jesus would never be allowed to suffer, die, be resurrected. The entire messianic mission of Christ, it hangs on this reality. And Peter, in his passion for his love for Christ, says this is never going to happen. Clearly, he did not have the inspiration of his heavenly father at that moment, did he? He got the word right, Messiah, but he missed its definition completely. It's a very serious issue. The result of misunderstanding the nature of Jesus' person and his mission can and will lead to a wrong view of discipleship. How can we follow someone if we are obstructing their mission by ourselves? And so that's what this text is really all about today. As Jesus draws attention to what is required to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Are we listening? Amen. He who has an ear, let him hear. Now, as we've done before, we recognize that the blessing of the first three Gospels is that they're in a synoptic relationship to one another. They're a similar relationship to one another. And so as a result, we see in all four Gospels, now the synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They have the title synoptic because they are similar, where John... In his gospel, he launches out giving illustrations of who Jesus is, as he says in the last chapter, so that we might believe in him. So his, his motivation is not the same as the first three um, apostles. However, this idea that we're going to look at today is something that's reflected fairly rarely in all four of the gospels. And so I'd like to have you turn your Bible to the 16th chapter of Matthew and verse 24 through 28. And we're going to look at each of these texts together of just, just to read them and have them as a context for ourselves. As you know, the authors, when they wrote these, their gospel, their main purpose was not to be exactly like the others, even though Mark was written first, it was the earliest of the Gospels, and when Matthew wrote his Gospel, he had Mark's Gospel in his presence as he looked at it and referred to it, but his goal was not to write an identical Gospel to Mark's, 
but to take the gospel of Jesus Christ, all of the, the, the totality of what he knew and what he had in his possession as far as um, pieces of the sayings of Jesus, almost as if he has a, there's a folder somewhere has all these sayings of Jesus in it. And he reached into that and he used the ones that he could best communicate the gospel to a Jewish audience. This is now Matthew. So we see all kinds of things in Matthew. They're very Jewish, Hebraic. You think of Mark. Mark wrote with an audience who were Gentiles. He was the author of the Gentiles, particularly in Rome. At the time he wrote his gospel, he was perhaps not in prison, but he was with Peter in prison. And after Peter's death, he wrote the gospel that bears his name. And his focus was on persecuted Christians, particularly Gentile Christians, in Rome, the church in Rome. And then, of course, we see Luke, and his goal was is to be comprehensive, to take all of the evidence that he could find anywhere, including witnesses, and to write a comprehensive story or a comprehensive gospel, which is the gospel of Luke, of course, and his audience was... Greeks, okay? I think I got that just backwards, didn't I? Mark is to the Greek and, G- and Luke is to the, gen- to the Gentiles in general, the larger body of Gentiles. Um, thank you for being polite and not correcting me right away. Uh, appreciate that. Uh, and so you see this, this idea that, you know, it's, I remember the first time I ever heard anybody talk about the similarity between the three Gospels, and I think I was probably maybe, you know, 16 or 17 years old. They said, yeah, it's like seeing an auto accident, heard this one before? Seeing an auto accident, and so you have one person stay on that corner, one person's over here, and one person's up in another car, and the fourth person, you know, they're just kind of, um, they're in a building someplace. So, so you have these different views of the same thing, and so they say, what happened? And they give a different view of the same thing. So that's why you expect them to all be the same exact thing, as the same exact accident. But it would be more like someone saying, to, to the people who saw it, and let's say one of them is a Jew and one of them is a, you know, Gentile, one of them is a Greek, and they have those of their languages also, they say, what happened? What is this? And so you turn to that person, you try to use words and things to try to get them to understand what it is that happened over here. And that's, more, that's a more accurate way of looking at this. So we don't expect exactly to be, if these things be exactly the same, but there's a high similarity because they are telling the same story. And so we pick out these unique differences that are between these authors and it helps us. And it also helps us to see the other positions. As we look at this, we're not particularly in any one of these three categories. And so as a result, we benefit by all three of these categories in our time frame. So in Matthew chapter 16, 24 through 28, then Jesus said to the disciples who are once to be my disciple, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and forfeit, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, 
And then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 23 through 27. I just love hearing those pages turn. Isn't that wonderful? Instead of hearing the heavy breathing. Luke 9, 23 through 27. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Then the final one is a single a single verse, and it's John chapter 12, verse 25. I'll wait for you, because if I read it, you'll, you'll never get there. It's very short. John 12, 25. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Again, John 12, 25. So as we see, it's very similar, very similar. In fact, all of them are very similar. Um, John's context that he puts it in is totally unique from the other three. It doesn't follow the feeding of the 5,000. In fact, very little of what we see in John's gospel is chronological. He simply just picks things and talks about those things so that his audience can know who Jesus was and believe in him, as we've said before. And so our text begins with <clears throat> when they came to the other, well, let's see, what am I looking at here? John chapter, okay. Then he called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, then he called the crowds. The word then is an interesting word. It, it does have a a carrying of time with it, as if to say the next thing after this. We see those kinds of things. Um, Mark doesn't use the word immediately following. We see that over and again as Mark progresses through his gospel and we'll make the statement immediately after this. And what that usually signals to us in Mark's gospel particularly is he's going to talk about something new. It doesn't necessarily mean it's something that just happened and now suddenly the next thing is going to happen. But it's something that he, he introduces themes with, this phrase. However, here he uses simply the word then. Now we have been studying together for about four or five sermons now, Jesus' trek or his journey into Gentile country. We see him going up to Tyre, then Sidon, and all the way, all the way down through Caesarea Philippi, past Bethsaida to start with, going to this unknown town that he, no one really knows where it is, and it's 
It's the only time it's used in the scripture. Nobody knows the name of it. And then he goes back up to Bethsaida and finally goes back to Caesarea Philippi. And that's where we were left last time when he was in Caesarea Philippi, speaking with his disciples. But then it uses the word then. The word then. So it really is a... And I don't want to be careful. I, I don't want to say something that makes it sound like this is the only way to look at it, okay? But it's very likely that Mark is using this kind of intro to show that this that he's going to talk about now is connected to that which he talked about before. And we think in terms of, of Peter making this statement, you're the Messiah, and he turns right around and says, you know, I'm never going to let you do the redemptive work you came for. And then Jesus' response in the first part was, the Heavenly Father's revealed this to you. You didn't say this on your own. It wasn't your own insight. It may seem like an insight, but it's actually an out-of-you sight. It's sight that inspired came from outside of you. Then the second one, when he said, no one's going to let this happen, he turned right to him and said, you are my oppressor. You are my enemy. You're the one who's coming against me. <laughs> and then he said, all you do is you think in human forms. So it, it's a very startling kind of thing that's happening. And it should be something that makes us a little bit weary and leery, I should say. That passage in Lamentations where it says, be not rash with your mouth. <laughs> be not rash with your mouth. Be fearful to open your mouth, it says. And then what the, what the psalm says, Lord, set a guard at the door of my mouth. You know, those should be some of our prayers when we rise in the morning. Let me, let me be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. And all the years I dropped off our kids at Christian school, I'd say to them, the last thing i say, now be, remember, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow, and quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to be angry. And so as soon as I even start saying that, they'd be, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, you know, right, we're on with me. But it's something we need to say to ourselves all the time. Lord, don't let me go out and lead with my mouth. Wisdom doesn't start starts from God. Wisdom comes from a fear of God. It doesn't come from our own insights. It comes from God, who He is. So as a result, it says that He, that he links this, this statement by Peter and in the, in the second statement by Peter. He now links this to this issue of discipleship. What is it a disciple is? called the crowd to him, it says, along with his disciples. In Mark's gospel only, in, in the addition to the disciples, he mentions the phrase, called the crowd. All the other ones just simply said, called the disciples, or brought the disciples to him. But here he says, he called the crowd. Now, there's a couple of observations we can see about that. They're important observations. It's the now, we've talked about this before, and I, and I repeat this only because it's, it, it, it's important. We sometimes forget these things, so it's important to see. But historical context can really bring the meaning of a text to us. Now, what do I mean by historical context? It's the place and setting of the writing. So in this, we see three possibilities. There's the historical context of Jesus. 
The original, when he spoke these words, where he was, what he said. And notice that there's no historical context that tells us exactly where he was. It just simply said, then. So we go back and see before, and we can see that he was in Caesarea Philippi. In the, in the one just before it. And so if these two are linked, which I think they are, we see he's still in Caesarea Philippi. And so the historical context of Jesus at this point is in Caesarea Philippi, Gentile country, north of the nation of Israel, north of Galilee, in this Gentile region. And he is showing this link with the two things. So we see the historical context of Jesus. And then you see the historical context of the author. Mark wrote this 15 to 30 years after Jesus died and was resurrected. Something along those lines, 20, maybe 20, right up to the point of 70 A.D. So it's prior to 70 A.D., maybe 64, 65 A.D. And so you see Mark's context. What's Mark's context? Mark's context is he's in Rome. He is with or has been with Peter up to his death. It's either with him then, or it's Peter has died, and he's now without Peter, but still living in Rome, and he's concerned about the persecution that's already starting to build against Christians in the Roman Empire, and particularly under Nero Caesar, who has just become the new Caesar, the emperor of Rome, and as a result, he has a very vile view of so many things and then because he didn't want anybody to think he was vile, he blames it all on Christians, or much of it on Christians. In fact, even the burning of Rome was blamed on Christians. But there's incredible persecution that's coming against the Christians in Rome. And so you see Mark's context. What do you think a third contract text is? We're in it. <laughs> We're in the third context. Third context is my context, our context, and the idea of what does this mean to me? How do, what do I get out of this? And there's some importance that we don't mix those things. I don't start with my context first. What do I need today? What, what does this mean to me today? Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. Hey, uh, I guess I'm his disciples. I guess I'm pure of the crowd. It's, I, it's me, 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 I, I, I. And so what we do is we have no idea what the context that Jesus was in was, or the, or the disciple or Mark who wrote it, we just go right straight to ourselves. That's a big error we make. And so what we try to do is we try to start with the most historic, historical context, which is Jesus' context. And we see in Matthew's gospel, he doesn't include crowd. We see in Luke's gospel, he doesn't include crowd. And John doesn't include it all because it's a completely different use. And so we think, that word crowd... Where does that come from? Why did he include that word in this, in this gospel? And so it causes us to have an attention that we look at it with. And we see, perhaps we see, the context of Gentiles. He, Jesus is in the context of Gentiles. He's in the context of Gentiles. And so as a result, he, when he says he called the crowd to him, he called the Gentile crowd to him. Remember he took his disciples away? Remember he took them away to tell them? about, about In the last pericope we looked at, he was talking to them in, in private. And then he and his disciples, this is when the whole thing with Peter happened, 
But the crowd is still there. He's in this in Philippi with a crowd. He's worked miracles. He's preached a gospel to Gentiles. The last thing in the world you'd think that would happen with Gentiles would be included in a presentation of the gospel. And the Pharisees were there, and they're already upset with Jesus because of his presentation. They'd already questioned why the disciples don't wash their hands and all these kinds of things. But they're there accusing Jesus. Number one reason they're choosing him is because he is preaching to Gentiles as a Jew. They don't care what he's talking about. After he feeds 4,000 people, do you remember this? They come up and said, show us a sign so we can believe in you. Think, you mean besides that? I wonder if any of them ate that food. I wonder if they had some in their little cloak or bag or something for the hike back because it was a remote place they were. There were people there. and They were challenging him for his message and particularly a message to Gentiles. And so the crowd that he calls... This crowd is not just the Jew first. You know, he also always said to his disciples, go out to the Jews first, preach the Gospels, avoid the Gentiles, the lands of the Gentiles, avoid the lands of the Gentiles. This is a historic kind of a sense that the Messiah was going to come and save his people, not all people. So as a result, we see him in Gentile territory, among the Gentiles, working miracles for the Gentiles, telling Gentiles they're recipients of salvation. And now he's going to describe to them what is the nature of disciples, and he has the Gentiles that are coming as well, along with the disciples. And he says, whoever wants to be my disciple... You don't make a disciple out of somebody first and then you hope they'll become a Christian. Discipleship is a product of redemption. It's a product of salvation. It's a product of awakening, of being born again. A person who is enlightened and regenerated by the work of the Spirit in their life. Now, there's a lot of people that put it backwards. You know, historically... You know, the word Methodist means a method. Those who have methods in order to live a religious, righteous life. And the Wesley brothers, George Whitfield was with them in this, and a host of others in England. And they really little, they set up a list of things that you must do in order to be a righteous person. And then they disciplined themselves to be that righteous person. John Wesley himself was the most, most um, committed to this order, to this methodology. And he was on a ship back from the Americas, the 13 colonies, where he had gone to spread Methodism, how to be righteous, turn away from your sin, repent of your sin, read the Bible, you know, just very wonderful things, not bad things, good things. And he got on a ship with a bunch of Moravians, if you know about the Moravians, Count Zinzendorf was the one who also established an order, and his order was an order of nurturing who, nurturing your faith once you have the faith. So you see, there's just a little bit of nuance of difference. One is to 
Nurture your method so you get your faith and then maintain your faith. The other one is you have a faith and then you try to nurture it. And so he's on the boat coming back to England, very discouraged because no one was picking up on his Methodism, you know, the how-to Christianity. So he's on this boat among the Moravians. And the Moravians are notorious, not notorious, but famous or committed to prayer inspiration, reading the scriptures, teaching the scriptures. It was a, very similar to what you would probably expect as a Christian today in most places. And Wesley writes this, I went to the Americas to save the heathen, but who has saved me? And he wrote this book called The Strange Fire. The rebirth, the being born again of the Spirit. And it completely changed his entire ideology by being born again himself. Instead of thinking, well, the evidence that I'm born again, you don't really have to have a spiritual experience. Everybody can have that because we have this spark in all of us. It's just a matter of starting to act like a Christian, to talk like a Christian, to do Christian things. And he did all that and even in his own testimony, he didn't feel like a Christian. But in an instant, the place of persons sharing the gospel and rejoicing in the gospel that changed their life, Wesley was awakened to the gospel and born of the Spirit. Now you might think, well, that's, that's an interesting story. Why would you tell that? Well, we've got the same problem today. It's not like it's different. You know, a lot of, there's a lot of divergence from one view of where things start and another. Some people say, well, what's the first thing that happens in order to be saved? What's the first, the first step in salvation? What do, what do you think it is? Pardon me? That's three. Keep going. Anybody else? That's three views. <laughs> That's three statements, okay. What's the first thing that has to happen for you to even take one step into the kingdom of God? What? <laughs> Got on the second row all by himself. <laughs> Jesus said to Nicodemus, when he came inquiring of him, what do I have to do? He said, you must be born again. Why? Because before that time, you're dead. Your mind is dead. Your sins have overwhelmed you, and the nature of sin runs your life. It runs your, it runs every, your every thought and inclination is to sin. All of sin comes short of the glory of God. We're God's enemies. We're far from Him. Paul goes through this list in Romans chapter 3, giving this whole litany of things that we can't do and won't do because we're not awake. So the, by His mercy, God saves us by the washing of regeneration. New birth. We come alive. And then the Word, we hear the Word. This happened to you? I know when I was saved, I, I was changed. I was born again. What's the first thing I had a hunger for? I started reading. I wanted to know the Word. I wanted to know the Word. I didn't have a hunger like that beforehand. I was told I was born again before then. Well, what about repentance? 
You know, the, the old classic of the blind man walking along and he gets to the edge of a cliff. He's a blind man, can't see a thing. Big drop off, way down. So he's standing there and he's quiet and still and he's, he's thinking about things. Um, I think one of them is, don't take any more steps. You think one of them is turn around and leave? Think one of them is trust? I'm fine. I'm staying on solid ground. Feel good. But what happens when you open his eyes? Or her eyes? Ooh. In fact, I'm going to stand whoa over here. I'm going to go back this way. In fact, I'm never going over there again. He repents. So all these things are birthed out of new birth. And so when Jesus talks about being a disciple. Whoever wants to be a disciple, he's not talking about whoever wants to become a Christian. He says, whoever wants to be a disciple, if you are, you've come to a new birth, isn't the thing we really wish that that person, you know, like in Chris's testimony, like her dad, you know, he, he, he knew, he, he believed. He says, yeah, I believe, but, 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 but. Is that a problem of new birth or is that a problem of discipleship? Is our problem today new birth or discipleship? If it's in the right position, if it's after being born again, we long to be discipled. And Jesus gives... Can I get an amen on this? That Yeah, I'm with you, Pastor. I follow what you're saying. Yeah. Do you really believe this? How many of you want to be a disciple? Really? I see some people that need a little more work out there. <laughs> or you don't want to raise your hand. <laughs> I never raised my hand around you, pal. I've been embarrassed too many times when I raised my hand around the pastor. But he says some simple things. He makes the general statement, whoever wants to be my disciple, and then from there he gives four F-O-U-R, and four gars, four in Greek, four characteristics of what a disciple is. It says, if you want to be my disciple, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now, as we read the parallel synoptics, this doesn't get simpler. It gets a little more complex. They must deny themselves. Wouldn't it have been wonderful if when we got saved, we never even thought about sin again? Temptation just bounced off us because we had this bubble around us. Nothing bothered us. Wouldn't that be great? All the old habits... All the old longings, all the old tensions, all the old anger, all the old unforgiveness, it just went woof and it's gone. And the real deception is, and if you have a radical conversion like I did, you think that really happened. Man, everything's new, everything's great, everything's wonderful, and you don't realize just your excitement is irritating people. <laughs> it's irritating people. And then you give it a little while. <laughs> you know, going on special pilgrimages to be with Jesus. 
Let's go on a, what do you call it? Well, there's lots of different kind of fasts. We're all going to do it together. We're going to go away to retreat here. We're going to fast for the weekend. And man, we go to the weekend, we start getting spiritual. Man, it gets just wonderful. We start hearing things from God about everything you can imagine. Everything's going wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Come back Monday morning, go to work. Realize the same place I used to be. And by Monday or Tuesday or most by Wednesday, you come back for the prayer meeting and everybody's depressed. Because we can't live on the mountain. And we have this tension going on inside of ourselves, this tension between what we've already received. I received the full measure of grace. God has saved me to the uttermost. He's, he's forgiven me for my sins in the past, my present, and my future. He's redeemed me. He's purchased me just like I am. I'm born of the Spirit. Yet we still have this nature. We thought it was going to be completely gone, but that nature just keeps kind of wearing on. Even the Apostle Paul says, the things that I want to do, I don't do them. And the things I don't want to do, I do them. That's pretty much it, right? There's expectations and unmet expectations. Expectations, I'm never going to do that again. And the next thing, I'm never going to do that again. Next thing is, I'm never going to do that again. For all I can say, I'm never going to be able to stop doing this again. You think God doesn't know that when he starts? There's this tension in us. And what it does, it continues to give us a relationship with people who are fully broken and fully dead and identify with them. What do you think your chances would be of sharing the gospel on some authentic level with somebody and your first phrase is, I'm now perfect. Come be like me. Be perfect. And what's the great big rub that non-Christians have against Christians supposedly? You all think you're perfect. We're far from perfect. In fact, when I became a Christian, I realized just how bad I really am. You must deny yourselves. Not only deny the, the negative things, deny that this is, the, I'm, I'm a sinner and all these things we will say. I'm a sinner and, I, I'm, and, I, and all these things. We, we have to put, the place where we accept God's grace, don't we? It's hard to do that sometimes because we don't see much fruit in our life for that. So we have to deny that reality that I'm not perfect. I'm not supposed to be. But it's a problem. It's a problem when you think you're so really well and so really adjusted and so righteous that you forget you're far from that. You have to come to the place of objectivity and say, I'm not righteous. I'm, I'm not sinless, I should say. But by the blood of Christ, I've been declared righteous. There's a big difference between that. Christ is righteous. He paid the, the full measure for my sins. And as a result, he declares me righteous. Based upon Christ's work. Well, if I get to the place where I'm thinking that I myself am achieving these things. And, and there's a doctrine called total um, sanctification. 
It's really a heretical doctrine that's existed in the Protestant church where a person is taught and believes that by discipline and methodology, this was the Wesleyan part of Methodism. The Wesleyan side said, we can reach finally complete sanctified living. No sins. <laughs> Except maybe the person of pride, you know. But there's a part of us that needs to push ourselves away from my own righteousness and embrace Christ's righteousness. On the other hand, if I think I'm so unworthy that Christ could never forgive me, I have to push away from that too, don't I? If you're going to be a disciple of Christ, you have to believe what He did is the only authentic and full and complete act that we can rely upon. They must deny themselves and they must take up their cross. Paul talked again and again, Philippians, about identifying with the suffering of Christ. He said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. Almost to the point where we can identify whether we're a Christian or not by having trouble. Far from thinking, as a Christian, I don't have any trouble. You feel like you're constantly doing this. Down to the smallest little things. You know, this shirt, I really love this shirt right here. I couldn't get this button button today. And just about the time I did, I broke the button right now. And I almost lost my salvation over that. That really annoyed me. To the point I said, and I, first I was going to say, why is it that I can't get nothing? Whoa, whoa, just deny that. You, 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 you're going to be standing in front of people here in a while. What did you expect? But we take it up. A righteous man falls down seven times. But he gets up. When you sin, it says, you have this faithful and righteous one to confess your sins. If you think we don't have any sins, you're a fool, you're a liar, you're, you're deceived. But when we sin, we have an advocate. We take up our cross again. We take up the cause. We take up the gospel. We take up the walk. If it's your cross, take it up. Your suffering, take it up. Take it up and properly view it. Properly identify it. So often, suffering causes us to improperly identify what's going on in our life. We could only then play it out to more suffering, greater suffering, and finally death and catastrophe. Tribulation works patience. Patience, waiting, hoping, or waiting and enduring something. Just waiting and enduring, waiting and enduring. You know, I, I'm listening to someone, you know, cough all night right now. So I just assume that's the way my rest of my life's going to be. Well, you know, frankly, she's going to stop hacking, and I'm going to start hacking, probably. And she'll have to listen to me. <laughs> We've had four kids. We're always sick. Someone's always sick. But we endure it. We wait. Upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And tribulation works patience. People say, you're such a patient person. Or you'll see somebody and say, you're such a patient person. And they'll say, well, not really. 
Well, what do you mean, not really? Well, they can't even tell you what patience really is, so how would they know what they're a patient? Patience is basically saying, I will trust the Lord. It's this emphatic statement, like praise. I will praise Him. But He's not blessing you. I will praise Him. Well, he's over-blessing you. I will praise Him. Things are going bad. I praise Him. I will. I will. David says it thousands of times, well, lots of times in the Psalms. I will praise Him. I will praise Him for His mighty acts. I will praise Him for His excellent greatness. I will. Manage your cross. Take it up your cross. You know, I left Christianity because it just got so tough. No. That's what it's supposed to be. If it's not that, then how are you going to identify you're a Christian? In the world you'll have trouble, Jesus said, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And this, this, is, just, this is not even the fours yet. This is just the, the, the common statement. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Follow me. I don't follow him so that I can somehow achieve what he achieves. I follow him because he's the only one to follow. He's the only way. He's the only truth. He's the only life. He's the sum and substance of reality. Everything I know, everything I study, everything I learn has to find its meaning through him. My worldview is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Follow me, he says. Don't follow someone who follows me. Follow me. Four. Number one. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. What's the most instinctive thing we have? It's the highest level. You know? Life, I want to live. You see people who are very sick, they're in bed. They're, they're grasping for the next breath. I want to live. I want to live. What do you want? I want to live. Want to die today? You want to die? Anybody want to die today? You thought about that? Well, I'd love to die today. No, we want to live. We want to live. We want to live. It's this, in, this deep within us. That you want to save our life. Well, he does a strange thing. He says, whoever wants to save their life, whoever wants to make this most basic instinct to save my life, you'll lose it. Man's Search for Meaning by Frankel. This brilliant book of a Psychiatrist, medical psychiatrist, who got swept up into Nazi Germany. He's a Jewish man. He, got in, he was in prison camp. And it's an observation of what happened there. And before, before people could even get out of the train, those persons who would protest, those persons who say this is unjust, this is not right, they got a bullet in the head. All he said, the best people died immediately. And then you see the compromise taking place. 
And what's it over? I want to live. And in the end, the Jewish people themselves were more notorious and more wicked toward Jewish people than even the German guards were. Because they knew that if they pleased the guards, the guards would keep them alive, even at cost the life of someone else that they were exposing. Read the book. It's a, it's a disturbing book. And he saw in his own life, he said after that first compromise, after the first thing you do in order to get yourself at a distance from death, what you do is you find yourself losing something. You start losing respect. You start losing your sense of conscience. To the point where he gives this harrowing description of being, because he was a medical doctor, he was in the medical portion of this concentration camp. And he said they would come by every day and their numbers had to be down. And so they had people who were clearly fine. They were not not sick. They might have had a cold or something. But they declared them to be dead. And he said as he was standing there one day, Watching, they all begin to attention. The doctors would stand back, and here comes the guards down, look at the patient, said it had a patient on the table. The man was clearly alive. They were about to start working on him, and the guard declared him dead. They grabbed him by his feet. They pulled him off the table. His head hit on the floor. He dragged him across the floor. This is in the wintertime. Down three steps, and he heard the clunk, clunk, clunk of dragging him out. As the man was protesting, he drags him out, takes him out onto a pile, and throws him in the cold on a pile of dead people. And the disturbing part is he said, I felt nothing during that entire time. I had trained myself to be able to go to this place where I could be protected from death. His greatest challenge, greatest curse was he lived through this. And he looked back on these times. We think, does that happen to you? Where you, you're right there with this opportunity. It's right there in front of you. You can do something. You can pray. You can give an encouraging word. You use the name of Jesus or whatever it might be. And you halt for a second. Just wait a second. Next thing. You feel great afterwards? You can do, oh, this wasn't God's timing. The Spirit wasn't really moving me. Or whatever it might have been. But aren't you trying to save something, preserve something about your life? With Jesus Christ, it's all in. And if we yield even an inch, and we all do this, thank God for repentance, eh? Whoever wants to save their life, you're going to lose it. But whoever loses their life, for me, and for the gospel... We'll save it. When we lose our life, we gain. When we save our life, we lose. The second four. Four. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their own soul. The soul of man, of woman, of mankind. The soul. The soul, that part of us that... That's the part that's fallen. That's the part that's sinful. That's the part that's broken. That's the part that's dead. 
there are many terms. There's soul, there's spirit, there's flesh. In flesh and then you know, the, 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 the life that's in us. and a lot, of, a lot of these terms we see used throughout the Bible, they all come down to one thing, the soul. It's that part of us that lives and thinks and motes and responds and you know, tactfully looks at life, how we're going to live it and so forth. It's just the soul. It's a part of us that's, we all know what it is. You're using your soul right now. It's your mind. It's your emotions, your will. But they're all synonymous terms for the same thing. You think of all kinds of ones. It's a part of us. It's our, our basic nature. We have a body and we have a soul. We have two things that are active in us, a body and a soul. We know they're separate, but we can't separate them. So as a result, we, he says, for what good is it for someone to gain the whole world but lose their own soul? One of the things that we have kind of an instinct about us is that this is not the end for this soul when I die. We'll have this question, is there something else? Is there something else? Now, we might, not, we might not know what it is. Maybe we won't even contend that it doesn't exist. Or we hope that what happens is that we die and the lights go out and we're just nothing. I mean, all these are there's different kinds of ways the world looks at this. Paul says, we're not like others who have no hope. Not like the world. You compromise a soul. And you talk about a righteous and holy and unchanging, just, omnipotent being who's going to then be your passageway by his word into whatever existence you think is out there. Do you think that person is going to be less righteous than you? Less holy? Less just? Less unchanging, more compromising. No. We are going to stand before the God of heaven, the great judge who's going to weigh us. He's going to weigh us on things we've done. And when we're in Christ, we're going to talk about Jesus. By the way, a little advice. It's advice I got a long time ago, and I think about it all the time. We get before heaven, and God says, what's your plea? What, are you innocent or guilty? I said, I plead the blood. I plead the blood. Standing on my own, I am guilty. I have no righteousness. But I plead the blood. In other words, I'm following Jesus, following him. But think about the rationale. Whoever wants to save their life, they're going to lose it. And whoever loves their life, for the sake of the gospel, we'll save it. In the second four, I'm on the second four. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and forfeit their own soul? Are we really ready to forfeit eternal life by temporal life? I mean, isn't that one of the things we're awakened to as Christians? Our discipler tells us you can also compromise your soul. You can also make things. You can also you know, forfeit or gain things in this world. But if you lose your soul and forfeit your soul, what a cost. Or, and it's because it's a complex four there in, number, in, in verse 36, it's four. 
what good is the, the first one, what good is this, the idea of losing your, your soul? The second one, under that same four is, or the idea of losing and forfeiting your soul and having no place in heaven. Number 37, verse 37, or, or he says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, another, another part of this four, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, there's a sustained attempt today to do something and that is to separate Jesus from his words. It's been going on for a long time. It's called The Search for the Historical Jesus. And Albert Schweitzer wrote the most famous book in this area back in the 1930s, I believe it was, something like that, where he took all of the views of, of Jesus the man, Jesus the Christ, try to separate them things out and see what things we can learn from his humanity, what we can learn from his divinity. And so you basically... You can't understand the divinity, but you can sure understand the humanity, and so you try to find all these characteristics that people should have in them, like Jesus. Well, you notice how Jesus said, me and my word. Me is Jesus. My word is this incarnate relationship with the second member of the Trinity, the word of God. The word became, who became flesh with him. And so we see this relationship between these two things. But here he uses it in a plural. He says, me and my words. And here is an important thing for us to see. This separation between the humanity and the divinity of Christ, which I mentioned a moment ago. It still goes on today where people would look at Jesus and even do it today. And they say things like, Jesus was a holy man. He was a healer. He was a loving person. He was a prophet. Blessed be his name. You know, in Islam today, they mention the name of Jesus. Blessed be his name. You know, even down to close relationships that have not yielded to Christ's will or to his work in their life or whatever, however you want to look at it. They're basically backslidden or they are trying not to be, they don't want to go to church. That's what they want. They don't want to go to church. I had a very close in-law that this person would always say to me, you're judging me. I'd say, well, what do you mean? Well, you're judging me. i say, well, so what if I am? i say, well, that's not right. You know that's not right. You know that's not right. You can't judge. You can't judge. The Bible says you can't judge. I said, oh, okay, you believe in the Bible, huh? Um, well, the Bible says you can't judge. I said, well, who said that? I said, you know, it was Jesus that said that? Jesus said, you shall not judge. So you're quoting it as an authority. Do you believe that Jesus said that? Okay, I believe Jesus said it. You think it's true? Yes, I believe it. What else did Jesus say that um, is in the Bible? Well, they're separating it. They're taking their own piece. They don't want, to, they don't want the whole thing. They just separate it. <laughs> He's a great prophet. Blessed be his name. Well, is a great prophet one who tells prophecies that come true, or is he a prophet that tells things that sometimes is true and sometimes is totally false? Which is it? Well, it's always true. Well, so do you believe Jesus is a great prophet? Pleasure to believe his name. Well, is everything he said true? You believe he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by him? 
Well, you see anger take the place of all this polite, you know, recognition of your, quote, faith. Anyone, he says, who's ashamed of me and my words is a sustained attempt to separate Jesus out and keep what I want in. These all defy the Bible's teaching. As a result, we affirm that the Holy Scriptures are not only writings about Jesus, but communicate the living Jesus and His living, abiding presence and His living, abiding will. This is not just a book about Jesus. This is Jesus speaking to us when we read it. All Scripture is given by the breath of God, by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Do you believe that? All Scripture. This is our immediate contact and relationship with Jesus Christ, the Word of God. And it has been stood by throughout history, even down to the Westminster Catechism. What is the Word of God, it says in its question. And, this, and the answer is the Word of God, which is contained in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy God. The only rule. In other words, if it's not in the Scripture, if it's against the Scripture, it's not God. There was a day, ladies and gentlemen, when the church clung to that truth. And now we don't even know what it is. You know what the biggest problem we have in Protestant Christendom? Is people no longer believe that the Bible is God's Word. And that it is a rule of faith and practice. We live in this beautiful state of Maryland. A major abortion provider in this country. And one of the largest concentrations of Catholicism in this world is right here in this, by per capita, in this state. And every time we hear a conservative come up, they talk about the Catholic Church being against abortion. And every single time the wave comes across I assume some of the Catholics are voting, and it just turns abortion on its head. And don't get so grim, because Protestants follow right along with it. You can't kill 61 million babies and not everybody be involved. Everyone. Why can that happen? Because we've turned away from adherence to the Word of God. If you love me, Jesus said, you will keep my commandments and I will be with you and my Father will be with you. If you keep my commandments, where are the commandments? In the Word. Go into all the world and make disciples of every nation baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe Whatsoever I've commanded you. Where was that source to get that information? It's in the Word. 
Notice that Luke makes the statement that we take up our cross daily. Daily. Want to be my friend? Don't call me every six years. Oh, you're just the greatest friend I have had. It's kind of, someone has an issue and they call me up and they say, well, such and such, oh, it's great to hear from you. Oh, it's great to hear from you. What was your name again? I forget. You know, I used to be the chairman of the board of deacons. Oh, okay. And they'll ask you some question. And they'll say, oh, you know, you're the best pastor I ever had. So, so wonderful to know you. I'm like, I don't know you. You don't talk to me. You don't ask me anything. It's kind of like, you know, Christianity. Gerstner says about the Bible, he says, if most people who call themselves Christians really knew what the Bible taught, really knew what it taught, they wouldn't like it, number one. And number two, they'd reject it. I've seen that so many times in my own experience. Jesus sums it up as an adulterous and sinful generation. Adulterous. Doesn't, doesn't take much to figure that word, adultery. It's a sexual problem. An adulteress. We're not loyal and committed to anybody. So with a young man one morning, and I was sitting at lunch or an early lunch with this guy in DC. I hadn't seen him for a while. He's related to me. And we're sitting down together and he's talking, he's just feeling really, really guilty. Finally, he admits he basically undermined his very best friend and ruined his life. He got him fired and ruined his life, and he got all his business. And he's feeling really, really guilty about it. I feel like, what, what am I, a priest? He's, and he's telling me this whole story. And he keeps saying this phrase, but it's business. He made some mistakes. He deserved it. He kept saying, it's business. He deserved it. He's business. What an adulterous statement for friendship. She doesn't treat me right. He doesn't treat me right. They don't treat me right. Where's our covenantal relationships with one another? Where have they gone? I know I'm going over. I'm sorry. Please forgive me, but David Wells made this statement. He said, we have lost touch with the God of the Bible. You want a relationship with God? It comes through this portal right here. Right through this. You know who God is? Right here. You want to know how to relate to him? It's right here. You want to know how to be his disciple? It's right here. We've lost touch with the God of the Bible. You know, the living God. We've lost touch with him. Because we've lost touch with the Bible through which he reveals himself. Test it in your own life. How do you feel after not reading the Bible for three weeks or a month or two months? How do you feel? You start taking up other things to keep you moving along, don't you? You don't deny things at that point. You compromise. It's a short trip between being loyal to people and disowning and, and betraying people in a wicked and adulterous generation, adulterous and sinful generation. And if you, he says, include, under this last four, if you include the Son of Man and you're ashamed of Him, King James says, deny Him, then when He comes in His Father's glory... With his holy angels, he will deny you. 
he'll deny you. And he said to them, last verse, truly, truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. Now, to all fairness time, I'm going to stop right there. And I'm going to pick that one up next time. All right? Please. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There's a difference between admonition and condemnation. These kinds of sermons tend to make us think, I'm really not a Christian. No. It's an opportunity again to retool, recommit, restart. Take up your faith. It's been delivered to you once and for all. Amen.